Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. We're a rewatch pod for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I'm your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I, I feel burdened with righteous purpose. <laughs> I I am also feeling good, and Jude, I really I really like the cat that you're holding up to the camera. That is my official pod cat. I think you should tell the listeners what the names of your two cats are. My cat's names are Meriadoc and Pippin. Uh, as you may or may not know, uh, I also have a podcast called Athrobeth, in which uh, I subject my listeners to my ramblings about Tolkien-related bullcrap uh with my co-host steph who gamely attempts to uh put up with my bullshit and then makes me talk about horses so if you've ever been curious about what the top 12 horses in middle earth are uh we have an episode for that if you've ever been curious about elven eschatology we have an episode for that too that's why my cat's name is uh after a hobbit so before we get too punchy um i think i'm slated to talk about grail right yes so this is episode 15 of season one, Grail, written by Christy Marks and directed by Richard Compton. So once again, we have another episode, another strange visitor to the station. This time extra mysterious, though. Uh, Delenn interrupts Sinclair and Garibaldi's meal to tell them to prepare. They have just enough time to prepare for an honored guest to arrive. An honored guest who they know nothing about. The two rush off to get on their dress uniforms and get to customs. Meanwhile, in Down Below, the shady crime boss named Deuce, because that's what you name a shady crime boss, is asking another man named Jinxo for information on secret passages in the station. We learn that Jinxo helped build the station, but he claims not to have the information. Deuce reminds Jinko that he owes 50,000 credits and shows him the consequences if he doesn't give up either the information or the money. A woman who agreed to testify against him is tied to a chair and gets her mind sucked out by a creature with tentacles in a Vorlon encounter suit. Sinclair and Garibaldi join Delenn and Lanier and meet the mysterious guest, who turns out to be a man named Aldous... How the hell is that pronounced? Gajic? who is searching for the Holy Grail and has come to the station to ask its various ambassadors about uh, whether they know anything about its location. Sinclair is incredulous and rather rude and ultimately explains to Delenn that the Grail is just a legend um, and that nobody's going to take anybody searching for it seriously. Delenn counters that this doesn't matter as uh, Gashik is a true seeker who is devoted to enlightenment. Gajik, meanwhile, goes to use the ATM and is pickpocketed by Jinxo, who is promptly grabbed by Garibaldi, who insists that both men must appear at the ombudsman hearing. Uh, Jinxo for his sentence and Gajik because he's a witness. 
Meanwhile, the woman from our first scene with Jinxo has appeared in MedLab. Dr. Franklin explains that her brain has been wiped completely clean, and she'll have to start all over again like she's an infant. Garibaldi is pretty upset about this um, because she was his star witness against Deuce. But Sinclair convinces him to hold off um, until Deuce can conclusively be linked to the brain wipe. At the courtroom, Jinxo, whose real name is Thomas, is barred from the station for five years. Um, he's very upset by this and claims that if he leaves, it'll be the end of the station and everyone who lives on it. Gadget speaks to the ombudsman and claims responsibility for Jinxo, and Jinxo is released into his custody. And Deuce reminds Jinxo of the ticking clock on their deal. Deuce's trial is next. Garibaldi explains the witness's condition, and the judge states that there is not enough evidence and dismisses the case, leaving Deuce clear to leave. Afterward, Gajic questions Jinxo about his claim regarding the station's destruction. Apparently, Jinxo worked on each of the previous Babylon stations, and they all collapsed or exploded or vanished into a rip in time right after he left. Uh, based on this pattern, he can never leave B5 or something awful will happen. Gadget suggests that this is not in fact a curse as much as absolute extreme good luck on Jinxo's part. Franklin, meanwhile, has been investigating the brain-like victims uh, and has found a possible cause. A creature called a Nakaline feeder, who, which are from Centauri space. When asked about them, Londo says that they are extremely dangerous. They destroyed an entire Centauri colony. Londo flees to barricade himself and Veer in his quarters after learning that there may be one on the station. Gajek begins to make his rounds of the ambassadors with Jinxo in tow. Delenn and Lanier are his first stop. Um, they have searched the Mimbari files very thoroughly and found nothing, but promise to ask the various Mimbari outposts to keep an eye out and pass word to Gajek if they come across any leads. Using Londo's files, Franklin has confirmed that the mind wipes have indeed been caused by a knuckling feeder. Ivanova starts in on tracking which ship it came in on, and Londo contacts the Centauri government to inform them of the quarantine breach. Gajic and Jinxo show up at Londo's quarters, where Londo informs them that a search for the Grail in Centauri records will be difficult and expensive. And Veer interrupts to explain that actually, no, it was very easy. He already did it just for efficiency's sake. God bless Veer. Uh, Veer gives Gajic the information and the two get the hell out of there before, uh, before Londo cottons on properly. In a scene between Gajic and Jinxa, we get more information on the Seeker's backstory. He once was an accountant, but was left purposeless after an accident killed his family, but left him alive. He met a man, the last Seeker of the Grail, who told him that Gajic was a man of infinite promise and goodness, and who entrusted his legacy to Gajic, who is now the last Seeker of the Grail. Uh, he tells Jinxo that Jinxo, too, is a man of infinite promise and goodness, as he's been willing to stay on the station to protect its people, even at the cost of his own financial ruin and risk to his life. Deuce's men capture the ombudsman and attempt to capture Jinxo but are fought off by Gajic, and the two move on to visit Kosh. Jinxo is absolutely terrified of Kosh, uh, tells Gajic that the Vorlon will eat his mind, and flees to down below. Gajic catches up to him there, and they're once again attacked by Deuce's goons. Uh, this time, they aren't so lucky. 
Gashik is captured, but manages to buy Jinxo enough time to escape. Jinxo finds Sinclair and explains the situation, or at least as best that he as he understands it. Um, there's definitely some, you know, the Vorlon's going to eat us all. Uh, and security heads to down below. Gashik, meanwhile, is attempting to protect the ombudsman from the feeder. He convinces the feeder to exit the encounter suit and show itself. Garibaldi and his team appear and a firefight ensues. Jinxo rescues the ombudsman, leaving himself open for Deuce to attack. But Gashik throws himself in front of the shot as Garibaldi and Sinclair uh, liquefy the feeder with their PPGs. Gashik is fatally wounded and passes his legacy to Jinxo. Sinclair, Delenn, and Jinxo all gather to transport Gajik's body back to Earth. Thomas, rather than Jinxo, because he's going by Thomas now, uh, will be going back as well. And Delenn gives him a crystal to crush over Gajik's grave to mark it um, with a glow for 100 years. Thomas heads off to leave, and back in CNC, the crew discuss the curse and watch Thomas's ship as it leaves the station and enters the jump gate. We then get one of Ivanova's absolute best lines in the entire show. No boom today, boom tomorrow. There's always a boom tomorrow. What? Look, somebody's got to have some damn perspective around here. Boom. Sooner or later. Boom! No, no B-plot in this one. Other than Londo and Veer huddling in their quarters, being extremely afraid of the feeder, and then being trolled by Ivanova. Yeah. This is, um, I have to say that my first, oh, I remember vividly my first reaction was, oh, so we're just doing the Holy Grail? Okay, this works. I'm good with this. Yeah. Yeah, it works. This episode is a little bit bananas. Not as bananas as the show will ever get, but it's up there. It's not the last Arthurian episode we're going to get. No, it's not. Uh, and it's also, of the two two that come to mind, it's not the better of the two either. Yeah. But I do like the the interactions. I do like the True Seeker stuff. The idea that all the humans, all the dumb, jaded humans are like, grail true seeker whatever and then in bari you're like put on your fancy uniform sinclair it's time to go meet someone special like everybody else has respect for this the idea of like a true seeker and i think it kind of highlights something that's actually really cool about babylon 5 is the idea that the universe is bigger and stranger than humans have quite cottoned on to yet Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love the moment where Delenn just absolutely slaps Sinclair for being rude to yeah. the Seeker. She's just yeah. like, how dare you? Like, you're being such an asshole right now. Yeah. The idea that, like, the Minbari have been out in space for a couple of thousand years, and they've seen some shit. And they recognize that, like, it's a weird universe, and you kind of got to roll with it. Whereas humans are like, nah, spaceships and science, ba-boom! And there very much is a sense in this episode of Delenn just being like, these fucking children. <laughs> like, Yeah. And, and something I didn't mention in the synopsis, because I, I didn't really figure out a good way to weave it in, is that there's this ongoing thread of Delenn 
insinuating that Sinclair himself is a true seeker, mm-hmm. which is it's an interesting thread. I think it's interesting. I, I, I feel like that this is going to be part of the plot line with Sinclair that unfortunately will get postponed by his departure from the show. But I think it's a thing that both Babylon 5 commanders share. They're both on some level curious souls. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to disagree with you. Okay. I I agree with you about Sinclair, but I don't think Sheridan is curious. I think Sheridan is... How would I describe Sheridan? I think Sheridan is just kind of weirdly innocent in a lot of ways, and that he's just, like, enthusiastic about stuff. That's fair. But I don't yeah. think he's actually that... Sheridan's kind of a little bit of a of a himbo. Um, I, I feel like there's also a distinction between season two Sheridan and season three through five. Yeah. Sheridan. Fair. Because season two Sheridan is curious. Season three is not. He's Yeah, he's definitely more curious in season two. Um, but he's, yeah, and he's definitely dumber in season two. Like when, when he talks about like the time he spent out on the rim, like I don't think that somebody who isn't a curious soul would spend that much time yeah. exploring the rim. That's fair. Okay, that's fair. Um, but I think I think being on the station does change him as he even like mentions that it's changing him. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. S- seasons three and like three and forward uh, Sheridan are very different than season two Sheridan. Season two Sheridan's definitely a little, a little dumber, a little more curious, a little more naive. And then some stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it sure does. <laughs> Boy, howdy. Boy, howdy. Justin's face right now. Oh, uh, there there were some really good bits in yeah, this, too. I like that the Babylon, in, in an episode about the Holy Grail, we get that Babylon, the Babylon series of stations is just the Monty Python bit. That one burned down. That one burned down and fell over. That one burned out, fell over, then sank into the swamp. Okay. It's, that one that one went into a time rift. Yeah. Yeah. Who who authorized the spending? These are like no city-sized fucking space stations, and Earth barely wants to like pay for a goddamn raise to the dock workers, and yet they somehow paid for Five of them, four of which blew up under mysterious circumstances. And they're like, yeah, let's try five. T- let's try for the fifth I, one. I mean, what the shit? Have you Lucky seen number five, right? Have you seen what a military budget looks like? Yeah. Okay. Yes. But also. Also, also, it's imagine, implied that there's like some money laundering going into the like actual construction. At least the first three Babylon stations. We're going to get to the fourth one. That one might have actually been legit. But the first three Babylon stations were definitely money laundering schemes. Yeah, maybe yeah, like, mob mob connections all mobbed up or something. Yeah, but because just we, like, the, we know that the dock workers, like that the, the docks are falling apart because they, because the contractors installed substandard equipment and pocketed the difference. Like, we know this. It's established. I'm just... Yeah. Uh, I just want to see, like, 
the the Centauri who like took this contract. His name is like Fat Toadius. <laughs> of just like uh, who, who I just imagine just Fat Toady for the Simpsons, but with like fancy hair. Oi. <laughs> okay, okay. We're getting punchy here. Yes. But what does receding hair look like for a Centauri? Does it go down? <laughs> or does it come in? Or does it does it go back? I think is, it goes is it like back. straight out back. the back? It's like until like until like they've just got like a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> they get more aerodynamic. They get, they get more aerodynamic as they get older. <laughs> well, there's a there's a thing that's that's wild with them too of that like the the size of the plume is like a measure of status too. Yeah. Oh, so that's man. that's why like Molari always has a male pattern baldness must be like brutal if you're Centauri. Yeah. Well, didn't the like the emperor wear a wig too? Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, uh so my my favorite stupid bit from this episode is the first time that we're we're seeing the ombudsman's um office and there's this dude and an alien who is just a Roswell Gray. Yeah, and that's a good thing. the dude is taking this fucker to court because his either him or his like grandfather or something abducted this human dude's great grandfather, and it's just such a stupid little bit, and I love it. Yeah, no, and then the alien holds up a sign covered in uh, what what crop circle like symbols, right? Like that's right. how he communicates is like. Uh, yeah, it's a very good bit. Yeah, this is one of those episodes that, like, I I don't love or hate this episode. There's bits of it that I like, like the True Seeker stuff, but I I could take it or leave it. Yeah. Uh, but there are some very good goofy bits in it. But I definitely prefer the latter Arthurian episode to this one. There, there's also some interesting tie-in stuff. So, like, we have that conversation with Delenn and Gajic where she's explaining about the castes in Mimbari society. Yeah. And he asks whether the religious and warrior castes ever agree on everything, on anything. And she says, like, once, and it was awful. Yeah. And that's that's a bit of foreshadowing there. Mm-hmm. And I also like that it's playing off of the fact that nobody knows what a Vorlon looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, for, for Jingso, it's perfectly plausible that a Vorlon is just, like, a tentacle monster in a suit that eats brains. I also want to point out that it's funny to me that the Nacaline Feeder and the, yeah, the Borgullet are basically the same thing and kind of look the same. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the thing that I find hilarious and fucked up is that the tentacles on the Nakaline feeder look like Centauri genitalia. They do. Oh my God. They really oh my do. God. This is a penis monster. It has dick hands. <laughs> this this is this is like one of those horrible it's things cent- you see on the internet that is just it's a dick monster. It's a Centauri dick monster that eats brains. God! No wonder they're so scared of it. I thought they were just being a couple of doofuses, but that's legit. Oh, no. 
No wonder. <laughs> I think that I see. I think that they use the same prop for the knuckling feeder tentacles as God. they do for Londo's anatomy. No, no, no. It's like the knuckling feeder comes first. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God. Exactly. And it's just like, let's reuse this. <laughs> let's reuse this to someone's penis. Uh... One of someone's penises. <laughs> because you see, we have five. Or is it six? Six. Six. As, six. as, as Veer will, will point out at some point. Yes. <laughs> okay. Anyway, before we should probably talk about we should probably talk about eyes before we just yeah, before we devolve is, into Stargate uh, jokes. Eyes is not a funny episode. Um, <laughs> give me time. We'll make it funny. <laughs> oh wait, is this the one? Uh, I hate this well, episode. Well, maybe maybe we can tie in Stargate SG One. Um, no, we're gonna tie in another sci-fi franchise with this one. Um, or Beautiful. at least there is there are options for that. Um, Zathras will hate us all. So episode one sixteen eyes, written by Larry Dottilio and directed by Jim Johnston. Two men review the personnel files of the senior staff, focusing on Ivanova. One man, Gray, believes she will be a problem and suggests avoiding her. The other one insists she must be dealt with. Sinclair, meanwhile, goes over the report of a terrorist bombing by Free Mars with Ivanova and Garibaldi. Earth is concerned that the terrorist groups might start trying to get weapons on B-5, which is complicated by the fact that many alien races have treaties to sell weapons on the station. Sinclair orders them to do what they can. A man who identifies himself as Aaron Frank probes Officer Welch about the station and Sinclair. Welch brushes him off, then alerts Garibaldi. Garibaldi goes to track down Franks and alerts Sinclair that Franks has been aboard for three days, along with a man named Harriman Gray. The two have been asking a lot of questions. Garibaldi goes to Gray in Frank's quarters and finds Gray alone. Garibaldi's attempt at interrogating Gray is snuffed out by Frank's arriving. He introduces himself, really, as Colonel Ari Benzane, part of Earth Internal Security. Gray, meanwhile, is from Psycor, and the two of them are here to conduct an investigation into the station and senior staff. Benzane and Gray meet with the staff at the station. Sinclair vouches for his staff, but Benzane informs him that he is on a directive from the Joint Chief of Staff. Ivanova objects to this whole ordeal, as telepaths are not allowed for such investigations. Colonel Benzane states that new regulations are taking precedent, and all officers must submit to probes. Benzane also reassigns Garibaldi to his own staff, which, I don't know, feels sort of counterproductive to, like, have somebody you're investigating assigned to you, but anyways. In private, Ivanova states that she will not submit to a scan under any circumstances. Harriman Gray comes to CNC to talk to Ivanova later, and states that he understands Ivanova's reluctance. He relates that he always wanted to serve an Earth Force, but telepaths are not allowed to serve. Ivanova has exactly zero fucks to give him, and accuses him of questioning her honor and threatens him if he scans her. Benzane schedules interviews, and Garibaldi warns Sinclair that Benzane is going into every decision that Sinclair has made on the station. Sinclair isn't particularly intimidated, but Garibaldi thinks that there's more to it, believing that Psycor is pulling the strings here in this investigation, 
and increasingly more back in Earthdome. Ivanova has a nightmare about her mother's death and sees herself in her mother's place. She visits Sinclair in the middle of the night and offers her resignation to avoid the scan. Sinclair refuses to accept it and says he thinks he has a way around it. Ben Zane and Gray discuss the investigation. Gray is very clear that he won't conduct any deep scans, but Ben Zane reminds him that Pester is watching and will appreciate his help. Sinclair arrives the next morning and asks Gray to leave the room. He states that the new regulations clarify that telepaths may only be used when specific charges have been filed, which there have not. Gray supports this, much to the colonel's dismay. Gray leaves and Benzene begins. Gray heads to the Zocalo and finds Ivanova. He tries to start a conversation, but accidentally scans her. Ivanova is aware of the scan and he apologizes. Gray theorizes that her mother's presence uh, when she was younger made her sensitive to psychic activity, but this doesn't really do anything to cool Ivanova off and she's just more pissed. Ivanova calms Sinclair during the interrogation with an update about the arm smuggling, but Ben Zane orders her to deal with it on her own. Sinclair, angry, announces he will no longer comply with the investigation. Ben Zane relieves Sinclair of command, taking command himself of the station, and charges Sinclair with working against Earth. Garibaldi uh, confines Sinclair in his quarters, then goes to CNC. Ben Zane has already taken command and informs Ivanova that she is now to submit to a scan after Sinclair is done. Ivanova tells Garibaldi she would rather be discharged than submit, and she takes Garibaldi up on that standing offer of a drink. They are set to meet in the casino in a few minutes. Before Garibaldi heads down, he stops by Sinclair's quarters and delivers some information. Not only was the colonel one of the officers passed over for command to Babylon 5, but he's also buddies with our old friend Alfred Bester, the Psycop. Garibaldi receives a message about his disturbance at the casino. Ivanova had started drinking early, got hit on, then went all out. Garibaldi covers for her and promises that the commander has found a solution. Sinclair arrives in the interrogation room and finds Gray there. He suggests that Gray is scanning the wrong people. Ben Zane arrives and resumes the interviews, this time being recorded. Sinclair is able to bait the colonel, suggesting that there's a beef here and accusing him of conspiring with Bester. Ben Zane has an outburst and accuses Sinclair of treason. Gray picks up on the deception and Ben Zane strikes Gray. He pulls a PPG, but Gray is able to stun him with a telepathic assault, and he is restrained, bringing the investigation to an end. There is a B-plot in this episode. I will sum it up thusly. Garibaldi wants to build an old 90s motorcycle that I am 45% sure as product placement. Lanier, being a buddy, is curious and wants to help. Lanier ends up finishing the bike on his own while Garibaldi is dealing with uh, Benzane. Lanier installs a Minbari power source, and uh, Garibaldi and Lanier ride a motorcycle through uh, the station. That's the B-plot. That's adorable. It Lanier is so is. cute in it. It's just not very notable. Well, Lanier's adorable, and Garibaldi's Garibaldi. That that moment where Lanier is doing the initial research on the motorcycle, and is like, sex symbol, you say? <laughs> Yeah, it's very good. Yes. Babylon 5 has a problem with a repeating trope of 
outsider from Earth Force comes to station gets shenanigans by the commander and staff and then leaves. And this is one of those episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only thing that this episode does that's interesting is it advances the Ivanova and telepathy plot. Yeah. It also inc- it also advances the is Sinclair Imimbari plant yes. subplot. Th- this this uh this this made me this yeah. deepened my theories on this. But this is a this is co- this is a follow up of two separate plot threads um, from Mind War and Skyfall of Stars. Yeah, it doesn't really advance either. Yeah, it- which is frustrating as fuck it's a fine episode like the actual like ben zane is possibly the i say this ben zane might be the most punchable person we've seen on the show yet (laughs) yeah it it's a i would say it it doesn't so much advance those plot threads as remind you of them yeah it's like hey remember that cool peace out we hit our runtime yeah like it doesn't move the plot forward it just brings it all back up again Whereas with the Ivanova plot, it it shows you we we've established that she doesn't trust telepaths, and now we've established that she is so anti telepath she will sacrifice her career rather than be scanned, which is aggressive, and oh, like yeah. they that moves her character forward. But it's going to take another entire season, mm-hmm. or I guess mm, not quite. But yeah, about about another like half a season to season before we find out why. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I think that's about all that it had going on for it for me was good Ivanova and Lanier. I mean there is one other thing in this episode that that I that I truly loved about this. Are we gonna talk about Harriman Gray? Yeah, let's talk about Harriman Gray. By? Yeah, Harriman Gray, who upon immediately like Hearing this man's voice, I was just the Undertaker rising from the grave. I think I, I watched this. I watched this episode like pretty late at night, like eleven o'clock. I was up later than I probably should, and frankly, I should have gone to bed before this one. But I rose like the Undertaker when I heard Harriman Gray's voice because that is Jeffrey Combs. Wayun. <laughs> he plays so many Star Trek characters. It's wild. I mean, yeah, he is Herbert West. He is so many Star Trek characters. He is the question. That voice, that voice is um, a whole lot of things. <laughs> and I feel like I feel like his acting job as Gray is also pretty solid. Yeah. Where he, he's got the kind of like, if you had a kicked puppy that was also really slimy. And it, it works. The scene with Ivanova where he's trying to bond with her over like, oh, your mom committed suicide rather than join Psychor, and I had to join Psychor rather than get to be in the military. We're the same. And it, like how desperately he's misreading the room there mm-hmm. is played so yeah. nicely because Ivanova's just like looking around like, hmm, what can I sharpen into a shank? And And he's just like, <laughs> Got this like dopey smile on his he's, face. Like he's so sincere about yeah. it. Yeah. So Justin, you've you've watched through to see uh, the 
the more detail on the Ivanova telepath plot, right? Yes. Okay. And so I feel like this is one of those things where, you know, in retrospect, this is really interesting because as he's like, oh, I wasn't able to join Earth Force because, because I'm a telepath. Like that's a, that's a piece of exposition because yeah. it highlights that, you know, when we realize that Ivanova is a, like, has a shred of telepath, um, she would be kicked out of Earth Force. She could no longer serve. Yeah, there's a um, there is a fanfic I am reading about a about a Star Fury pilot who is also a hiding telepath in Earth Force. Um, Ooh, interesting. Aaron, I'll toss a link for you to put in the show notes because we're officially at the point where I'm just like, fuck it. I'll I'll toss I'll toss fanfic in there. I'll, we'll, we'll toss fanfic in the show notes. Um, I'm not allowed to read like half of it because because I haven't started I haven't finished season three, so or I haven't started uh. season three, so I'm not allowed. To, well, so I've only read so many chapters. But anyway, yeah, no, it is. It's a weird thing that like Psycor can't be part of the military. Like it makes sense, but it also just like. Well, I think it's I think it's part of the like thing that I'm not. I'm not sure how intentional this was and it's something that makes me kind of uncomfortable is that there's this like kind of parallelization between being a telepath and being queer. Yeah, I, I, I get that. That's, and, and you know, that, that, that would have been during the don't ask, don't tell era. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think they were trying to do like a one for one parallel there, but I definitely think, but I agree with you that there's definitely some, some coding there. Yeah, it might have been kind of a way for JMS to insert some queer themes mm-hmm. without being super explicit about well, plus it. Plus, it was the '90s. You can't like, yeah, you couldn't put the word telepath anywhere without having it be related to the X Men. The X Men were fucking knocking it out of the park in in the late '90s, and so and the X Men have always been so richly associated with uh, queer coding that. It was is inevitable that you get that 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 association. I do find it very interesting how like B five gets the generic like that Gray gets to pull like the generic mind blast. Those are <laughs> it, it's just it's funny to me. It's just like it's just like I can mentally assault him and like and that's how they get great. They get that's how they get Ben Zane to like stumble so they can take him down. It's just like. This is very, uh, this feels very like Yu-Gi-Oh! Mind Crush. <laughs> I will activate my mind blast. <laughs> Telepaths are silly. Um, I appreciate that GMS, like, put, like, thought into stuff of, like, these are the things that telepaths are allowed to do, and these are the things that telepaths aren't allowed to do, because otherwise stories start to fall apart if you start asking too many questions about psychics. Mm-hmm. Which, that's fair. I, I get that. That's great. I do find it interesting that, like, Ben Zane's, like, motives are mostly just he's an asshole and got passed up for command for what seems like a really, what seems like actually a really shitty job. Like, I don't imagine anybody would actually want to command B5 after, like, a year of this. 
<laughs> unless, okay, unless, unless that Sinclair is just missing out on the biggest, uh, on like just the biggest way of like getting cash. Like he should be taking bribes left <laughs> and right. And the, the Babylon project is a massive money laundering and criminal organization theory. I, that, that, that's the only reason why Ben Zayn would want command of the station. You got to think like if the person running Babylon five were not ethical, think about like the disastrous things you could do with that, with that power. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, it also could be basically a military outpost much more than it is. Mm-hmm. I think there's also the feeling that, like, it might not be a good posting day-to-day, but it's prestigious. And so somebody like Ben Zane could spend, like, a couple of years there and then get, like, a destroyer-class ship or something. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like, yeah, I mean, it, it's a, a bad person in that job probably could be you could probably be a lot more active with it than the misery job that Sinclair's doing with that thing right now. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's kind of everything we've got for this one. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, these were two relatively plot light, or, uh, not like they're, they're meta plot light. Yeah. I think they're, they're, you know, around like 60th percentile. Yeah. That's a good I way mean, of putting it. It's just like, yeah, I, I mean, it's, you've got to fill 20 episodes a season and these were fine yeah. ones to spend 45 minutes on. Yeah. Nothing, nothing really bad about either of them, but they're not memorable. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Cool. Um, anything else we want to talk about this? Um, we've got Minbari penis monsters. Centauri. Uh, Centauri. Centauri penis Centauri monsters. Centauri penis monsters. Gosh, uh, this is how we know we've been recording for this. Is, this is the end of the second episode of recording for the evening. Um, and Babylon Five is a massive money laundering scheme. Um, yeah, that's that's what we can take away from these uh, these two episodes tonight. So join us next time as we uh, we watch episodes eighteen and nineteen of Voice in the Wilderness. Until next time, be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.